0: Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are humbled, deeply, deeply humbled that you should reveal deal yourself to us and that we can walk alongside you. Teach us what it means to know that you always keep your promises and that you never break them and how that transforms our lives radically for your glory. We pray. Amen. I was watching this show and it's about two foster brothers. And there's an older brother who's kind of like the bigger, stronger brother who always takes care of the little brother. And you just kind of watch this journey of them growing up and going through um, difficult times. And at one point in the show, I think the older brother was about 16 and the younger brother was about 10. And the older brother looks at his little brother and says, everything is gonna be all right. Everything's going to be alright. I promise. Have you ever said that? Have you ever heard somebody say that to you in the midst of turmoil? Everything's going to be alright, I promise. And the little brother responds, Don't say that. Don't say that. You can't promise that. You're not there 24-7 to watch over me. You can't promise that a hurricane is going be to take out house. You cannot promise that everything will be okay. And for all of us here, we have broken many promises. Promise to be at your kid's game, promise to give them that candy bar, and maybe bigger promises. And we think of marriage vows, marriage promises, where people say to each other, through sickness and in health, For better or for worse, until death do us part. That's, That's a pretty significant promise. To promise someone that I will be with you in sickness and in health. Even when you are ugly, I will be with you. Even when you are sick, I will be with you. For better or for worse, until death do us part. And obviously, not everybody keeps that promise. And in Canada, the divorce rate is 38%. We, we break our promises. Every one of us, we've done that. And as we open up the Bible, the Bible is showing itself to be one story of how God is promising to restore the world to the way it was, to the way it was supposed to be. So the first chapter in Genesis, God created this world that was very good. He created people, He created the animals, and it was very good. But people rebelled. People didn't listen to God. And generation after generation, this is what we read about in Genesis. It's the fall of mankind. That people continue to disobey God, and we call that sin. And God is a perfect God. He is good, He is just, He is loving, but He cannot have sin in his perfection, and he judges sin, and each one of us will be judged according to what we've done in this life, each one of us. Humanity broke that relationship, we've broken that relationship. The world has rebelled, we have rebelled against a good and perfect God. And so Genesis opens through this man Adam, sin had entered through him, and now we are all under the curse of sin. And decay enters the world. That our bodies are shriveling and dying. I have this wrist ache that won't go away. I'm just chronically in pain. My body is failing me. There's division. There's division at school. There's division in your workplace. There's division in your marriage. There's division all around you. There's division in your dating, in your relationships. There is decay. There is division. And there is death. We will one day die, and that is the curse of sin, and death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. It is not good. And so as we're going through Genesis, previously we read in chapter 14, there's this man Abram. Genesis is now focusing on this man Abram. Whereas, prior to chapter 14, the story of Genesis is the world at large, that's in constant rebellion, and how God is protecting a, a descendant, a genealogy, and it's now focused on this man named Abram, and Abram becomes rich in a place called Egypt, he has a wife, and he's in a land, and this land erupts with war, there's many kings that come in, nine kings actually, they, they're having war against these towns, and, and Abram, he, he chases these kings out and saves his nephew Lot. And this is an amazing story, you can read back in Genesis. And typically as you, as you have victories and places in war, you can take, you can take uh, what's in that town. These are called the spoils. They're kind of like pirates, I guess, they would just take whatever's left of the town, And as this leader of a city, Sodom, is offering to give Abram the spoils, he rejects it. He doesn't want the spoils. And in response, we pick it up in chapter 15, God states that your reward will be very great. Because he's rejecting the use of this human wealth. To achieve greatness in Abraham, or Abram, he becomes Abraham in chapter 17. Abram, he demonstrates that he's trusting in God's promise to provide. He's trusting in God's promise. And what is this promise? The story of Genesis is central and is narrating around this one promise. We find it in chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. God makes an explicit promise to Abram. And this is how we understand the whole book. This is how we understand the Bible. This is how we understand life as a whole. The Lord said to Abraham in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So as it's this curse that's happening, this rebellion against God, God is saying, I'm going to restore this. And I'm going to use you, Abram. I'm going to use your family and your descendants. And through you, you're going to bless the world. Through your family, you're going to bless the world. And this leads us right into chapter 15, verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. So right here, God is promising to protect Abram. And in response, Abram, you must not be afraid. God is confirming this promise that you will be a great nation and you will go on and bless the world. God is confirming this promise. He's essentially telling Abram, I am with you. I will be with you. And I will keep my promise. Place your faith in me. That's an incredible thing. The creator of the universe who made the stars, the heavens, the mountains, the oceans, the fish, you... He says, I will be with you and I will keep my promises. Place your faith in me. And how should you respond to such a promise? You do it by trusting Him. And it makes you brave. Yet, Abram doubts God's promise. Verse 2. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own. So one of my servants will be my heir. So God makes this promise to Abram. You're gonna have many descendants. And you're gonna bless your descendants, you're gonna bless the world. But Abram's thinking, I don't even have a kid. And I'm eighty five. I think you're behind. My Fitbit tells me you're behind. (laughs) I don't even have a kid. And is this not like us? The circumstances of our lives can frequently tempt us to doubt God's goodness. God says He's good. I love you. I will take care of you. Follow me. We doubt His goodness or even question if there even is a God. As you go through abuse, As you experience trauma, you can question, is there even a God? Does He care about me? Look at me. Where am I? Where are you? That's a legitimate question. And our lives can often seem like they're spinning out of control. Our relationships are breaking down. We're losing work. We're getting sick. We're anxious. And life can overwhelm us. So this is the question, how do we trust God's promises when life is so hard? How do we do that? The answer is we believe. We'll find it in verse 6, but we'll start with verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. How do we trust the Lord? How do we trust His promises when life is so hard? This is it, right here, verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of this faith. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of this faith. Now, righteous, this isn't a word we typically use unless you're in Southern California and you're surfing or skateboarding. This is not righteous, man. What are you talking about? What does that mean? Is that cool? Righteous It's not a word that we typically use, but here, here's a definition. This verse, in fact, chapter 15, verse 6, is a key verse in Genesis. It's actually a key verse for understanding the entire Bible. In this exact verse here in Genesis 15, verse 6, is quoted four times in the New Testament. So the Bible is broken up this way. You have 66 books, and you have a three quarters of that book we call the Old Testament, prior to Jesus' coming. The, the last quarter we call the New Testament, the coming of Jesus. So in the New Testament, now Jesus is on the scene. We'll talk about Jesus later. The New Testament quotes... Verse 6 in chapter 15, four times. Here's the first instance. A book called Romans, chapter 4, verse 3, where the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Second instance, Romans chapter 4, verse 22. And because of Abraham's faith, reminder, Abram becomes Abraham. We'll get there next week. And because of Abram's faith, counted God counted him as righteous. Third instance, a book called Galatians, chapter 3, verse 6. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Fourth instance in the New Testament, James, chapter 2, verse 23. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 is a key verse for Genesis, it's a key verse for understanding the Bible, it's a key verse for understanding life. So what is righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? Here's the Bible's definition. Summed up. So the Bible's standard of human righteousness is essentially perfection. It's being perfect in your every attitude. It's being perfect in your very being. It's being perfect in every behavior. It's being perfect in every word. If you are this person, if I'm describing you right now, you can get up and leave, and you don't need to listen to anything I say from now on. If this person exists, this person is absolutely righteous, perfect in every way, in mind, in heart, in deed, in action, everything. You are righteous. Because the standard of righteousness is that we're comparing ourselves to a perfect God. And if you fail at one point, if you have mixed motives now, if you're thinking about your grocery list or that show you're going to watch, you failed. You cannot be perfect. And you can't erase that. It's over. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been bowling. There's something in bowling called a perfect game. The perfect game is where you hit all the pins down on the first shot, you get a strike, and you need in, in ten pins or five pins. You need twelve strikes in a row to have a perfect game. So imagine this: you're up there, you're a professional bowler. You've been doing this your whole life. You're, you're bowling and strike, first strike. Second, second strike. Third ball, third strike. And as you go, and just say you're on your ninth ball and you fail to hit the last pin, your perfect game's gone. You have to start again. You can't retake that shot. And the Bible says a similar thing. Bowling is a very base analogy. Okay, okay. It's more like this. If you break a single crime against God, his fury, his judgment, because he's perfect, is upon us. And he will judge us, and he sends us to a place called hell. So if it says you break in any of my laws, I have many laws in this in the Bible. I think there's over 700. You need you need to do them perfectly. You need to treat your wife perfectly. You need to treat your friends perfectly. And if you err at all, you miss that pin. You are not righteous. And this is our biggest problem. This is all of our biggest problem. This is my biggest problem. This is your biggest problem. Is that we are not righteous in the sight of God. We are not. And we will see God's judgment because of that. We've all erred. We've all rebelled. Yet, the Old Testament, it talks about righteousness as this foundational virtue. And yet, right here in verse 6 in chapter 15, Abram was credited as righteous because of his what? His faith. Not because of his actions. Because if you read back A few chapters, he gave his wife away because he didn't want to die. That's not good. That's not good. That's not good, by the way. That's not a good (laughs) thing to do. Okay? Marriage vow number one. Don't do that. (laughs) He was counted righteous because of his faith. But what is faith? What does faith mean? Talk about faith. How's your faith doing? Where do you place your faith? This is what faith means. Faith in God means trusting God's promises that we find in the Bible. And we show our trust by obeying what he says. Faith takes God at his word. Whatever God says, we obey. There's no, "Ah, but, what about, no, silence. You're, You're talking to a perfect God. We're taking God at his word. But it's not a blind faith. It's not a stupid, silly, unreasonable faith, which I thought it was in 2009 before I was a Christian, that all Christians were uh, delusional and silly and manipulated and brainwashed. They had no evidence. This evidence is out there for the resurrection of Jesus. There's archeological evidence. There's philosophical evidence, and I would love have a bowl of poutine with you and talk about that kind of stuff, but just just hear this. It's not a blind, it's not totally unreasonable. There are things in reality that bolster the faith. So we're taking God at his word. And God is continuing this conversation with Abram. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, this place, Of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. And as this conversation goes, he's saying, God is saying, I will accomplish this. I will do this. I promise you. And I will not fail. And just to prove it, let's sign a contract. Sign a contract is used very loosely here because open your ears and just hear about what I'm going for It's a little bizarre. Verse 8. But Abram replied, O oh, sovereign Lord, how can, it be, how can I be sure that you will actually possess it? The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, which is a young female goat, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dog, a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. Isn't that just a beautiful piece of Bible right there? How am I supposed to understand that? Okay, obviously that sounds very strange to us. Clearly. But it wouldn't have sounded strange back then. Because the problem is, if you have a 21st century mind, and you're reading into this, it makes no sense. If I'm to make a contract with you, I'm not saying, hey, bring me a donkey, bring me a goat, get on my knife here and start. The, whoa, like what are you doing? You can call PETA, maybe the cops, <laughs> maybe like tie me down, because that's that's not so good. But if we're embedding our 21st century mind into the text, that's we're not giving the text its proper way of looking at it. That's called anachronism. It's called anachronism. When you're looking at something that with your 21st century mind, something that was written thousands of years ago. So Abram, he understood exactly what God was asking him to do. Bring me the cow, bring me the goat, bring me the ram, bring me the turtle dove, bring me the pigeon. Because in ancient custom, during this time, it was common for a contract to be sealed like this. When two groups were to formalize a promise, you know, we do it by signing it, back then, they would kill a donkey and divide it in two. And they would put one half here and the other half here. And to to sign the contract, you would walk between the severed donkey. You will never have to do that here at the Northern Collective to finalize an agreement. But that's how it was done during Abram's time. God is confirming his promise to Abram and saying, I've signed it in blood. It's a deal. And he goes on to explain in verses 12 to 21 how he's going to give this land to his descendants. God has finalized his promise with this covenant. God always keeps his promises. But we often don't trust him. God always keeps his promises. That's, that's, a, that's an astounding statement in itself that God always keeps his promises. But we, we don't trust him. And this is where chapter 16 of Genesis comes into play. We're going to hear more about Abram's wife. Verse 1 in chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. I'm going to pause there for a second. So, back in ancient culture, it was a tragedy. It was a great tragedy for a woman not to have children of their own. In fact, it was a mark of success to have children. And it was a great failure to have none. So, she, so, so Sarai, Abram's wife, realizing she's kind of getting older. She doesn't have any kids. And she comes up with a solution. A solution. Let's quote the solution. But she, Sarai, had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram... The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. Sarai really wanted God's promise to be fulfilled through her husband. And she was angry about the fact that she had no kids. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children, she said. God has prevented me from doing this. She's casting the blame on God. She became very impatient, and she didn't trust God's promise, so she decided to do things her way. Sarai's solution seems strange to us, but again, we don't want to be anachronistic. Because it was conventional and proper at the time for something like this to happen. There's something out there in in historical studies that's called the Nuzi Tablet, N-U-Z-I. And these texts that you find in ancient history, they're they're texts that basically talk about legal and business things. And so in the Nuzi Tablet, in one of the laws in, in the Nuzi Tablet, number 67, it describes a marriage during these ancient times. And it says this. If Gilmanu, this is a name, if Gilmanu bears children, Gilmanu will now become Jane, for our context. If Gilmanu bears children, Shinema, the husband, which will be called John now, shall not take another wife. So let me read it again. If Jane bears children, John shall not take another wife. But if Jane fails to bear children, Jane shall get for John a woman from the Lulu country, which is a slave girl, as a concubine, so like a surrogate mother. In this case, Jane herself shall have authority over the offspring. So even in ancient times, this was not, this was not a weird thing to do. Sarai's so thinking, I don't have any kids, I know how we'll do it. If my husband just sleeps with my servant, we can have a kid through through Hagar, bada bing, bada boom, solution. Newsy Tabber talks about it. We're good. It's good. It's good to everybody except God. It was conventional. It was was proper to those in that context. But it was not proper from the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, this explains why man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united as one. Marriage is this Promised relationship between a man and a woman exclusively God said that right at the beginning so this newsy tablet is out to lunch and so is the culture like ours and Sarai like many of us she didn't trust God's promises and decided to do things her own way and she sinned and she sinned to get things her own way is that not the story of our heart? Is that not the human story? If we're honest, don't we steal to get our way? Don't we lie to make ourselves look good? Don't we cheat to pass that test when nobody's watching? Or we attack people to come on talk, whether it's on social media or physically, or we say things, I don't need to pray. I'll figure it out. I don't need to read the Bible. I understand how life works. I don't need to go to church. I'm spiritual. We're doing things our own way. And Sarai made this plan. This brilliant plan, she thinks. And how does Abram react to this proposal? We continue in verse 2. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. This is not good. And the crazy thing is... If we rewind a few chapters back, in a place called Egypt, Genesis chapter 12, Abram had given his wife, Sarai, to the Egyptian leader. So Abram already did it. Gave his wife away, like a coward. And here, Sarai gave Abram over to her Egyptian servant. Back in Egypt, chapter 12, Abram gives his wife. Now here, wife gives husband. Abram is not an innocent victim here. Because it takes two to tango. And Abram, I would say, and I think the scriptures are trying to tell us, is primarily at fault. He was the head of the house. God had spoken to Abram, not to Sarai. And he should have never allowed the situation to happen. Abram's passive acceptance is even more offensive. And this echoes what happened right in the beginning for the first two people were on earth, Adam and Eve. God said, Adam and Eve, I give you this garden, I give you all these animals. You are to shepherd it, you are to take care of it. But don't eat of this one tree in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from that tree. What does Eve do? listens to this lying serpent. Adam, take a bite. And what does Adam say when God confronts them? What happened here? Adam says to God, the woman you gave me, are you a parent? You ever say, your son did this, not my son. My son is all about taking care of orphans and petting kitties, but your son, he's the one who put that toast in the VCR. Okay? Adam's like, you gave me this woman, and then he blames the woman. Abram's doing the same thing. Abram spoke with God, not Sarai. And and Abram, he didn't even question the idea. I can't even imagine what his face would be like when when Sarai comes up with a proposal. Sleep with Hagar, maybe she'll have kids for you. Was it just like, okay? That's a good idea. No. No, Abram, it's not a good idea. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, it says. Is this the same man who defeated these kings 120 miles away? Abram taking Hagar is a massive failure and a massive rebellion against God. And here we have, the story continues. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat mistress Sarai with contempt. Continuing verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, "Look, she is your servant. She's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit." Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Abram here was being a coward. He was he was hiding behind the, the law of the land at the time. And you can read it, you can read about these laws, and it's called the Code of Hammurabi, H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. And this code is essentially a code of law, what you could do during the time and what you couldn't. And in the Code of Hammurabi, you could do that. You can, this is what it says. You can essentially, it's in law 146 of the Hammurabi Code which says that if a servant claims equality with her mistress, because now they're both wives, if the servant claims equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may demote her to her former status as a slave. This is what Abram did. He said, look, she's your servant. You do what you see fit. And again, Abram didn't take any responsibility for the situation. Neither did Adam. Adam blamed God and the woman that you gave me. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her." What we're reading in chapters 15 and 16 is messed up. It's totally messed up. Because normally, the girl's father gives them away in marriage. But Sarai gave her away. And Abram again was a coward. And Hagar had no say in the matter. She was just taken and given away like an animal. She was treated like a commodity. Just a piece in their pawn, or a pawn in their puzzle. A mix of metaphors, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Yet God, in His amazing graciousness, in this totally messed up situation with Abram and Sarai and Hergar, and you got this love triangle, you got this baby, you have this promise, and you're just like, what is happening? Verse 7, we we'll pick up this beautiful promise that God makes to Hagar. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. I will give you more descendants than you can count in verse 10. God's promise to Hagar is incredible. I will give you more descendants than you can count. That's a very similar promise that God made to Abram. Hagar, who's in this strange love triangle, is now pregnant with Abram's kid. Hagar is the only woman in the Old Testament to receive a promise like this. She's the only one. She was an honored woman, even though she was disgraced by Sarai and Abram's cowardice. And God sees Hagar when no one else did. And you might be in a situation like that. You feel so disgraced and in the shadows and in just shame and fear But God sees Hagar, and God sees you. And as we close chapter 16, verse 11, we read this. And the angel also said, You are now pregnant, and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cries of distress. The son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Therefore, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord, who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well-named Beer Lahorai, which means well of the living one who sees me, it can still be found in Kedesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. God keeps his promises, and we don't trust him. He makes a new promise with Hagar, and our job, her job, Abram's job, Sarai's job, is to simply believe, to trust and obey, even when it's hard. This is what it means to live by faith. This is what it means to be righteous. Because if it was up to our actions, we've all failed. We failed today, we're gonna fail tomorrow, we're failing now. We need to be perfect. We need to be righteous. This is what it means to be a Christian, that you must be perfect. But the thing is, we cannot be righteous. When you say, I'm human, I'm just human, That's a problem, that's a problem in the eyes of God. There's only one who was righteous, perfect, who obeyed God every second of his life, who had perfect thoughts every minute of his life. This person was God coming down in the flesh as the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only righteous person who has ever lived But why does that matter? Who cares about Jesus? So what if he was perfect? So what if he healed people? So what? This is the thing. The biggest problem we have is that we are not righteous. The greatest solution to that problem is for that rebellion to be forgiven. Jesus Christ, he is that forgiveness. 2,000 years ago, this righteous man, there was no other righteous man, he paid for our rebellion. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That by believing in Jesus, his righteousness is given to you. We call that imputed righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to you by faith. You cannot make yourself righteous because we suck at bowling. You just can't do it. It's very hard to have a perfect game all the time. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the message of the Gospel. That if you were to believe it, that the punishment that you and I deserve is now placed on Jesus Christ and He has exchanged His righteousness and innocence for our guilt, we call that a, the beautiful exchange. The beautiful exchange. Jesus Christ has done that for us. And it transforms us. So the way we formerly lived, the things that used to entice us The things that we want to touch and grab and take. When Jesus comes into your life and transforms, you are radically different. This is the gospel. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he is Lord? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If you do, if you have done that, if this is the first time you've even considered that, Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says this, Then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise, that we are added to the descendants, as numerous as the stars. We are included in Abram's family by faith. By faith we become part of Abram's descendants. And we are entitled to all the promises of God that He made to Abraham. Isn't that beautiful? What more? What more is there that this world could offer? That car? That perfect job? Is nothing. It's nothing compared to this promise. And God always keeps His promises. He says, if you place your faith in me, I will save you. We will enjoy a relationship forever. And for those who don't, I promise, I will punish them. This is also a promise. So what do we do here? We're pleading with people. When we share the gospel, we're trying to teach. And we are trying to persuade People of this truth. There is no other news out there that we should be sharing. This is the gospel. This is the promise keeping God that the whole Bible is about and has invited you into his story. Amen. Heavenly Father,